I want to invite you to remain standing one minute longer and join me in the letter of Jude. Way in the back of your Bible, in case you forgot. I tuned into last week's sermon, where to my utter dismay, um, Don made a comment about finishing the book of Jude, and I could hear chuckles of laughter, and, and I thought right away, payback is coming. So we have a 17-point outline this morning. I hope you had a big breakfast. Um, As we continue to draw to a close the letter of Jude, um, let us read together, beginning in verse 17 through verse 23. And this week's emphasis is on verses 22 to 23. After a careful description in verses 5 through 16 of these false teachers who crept into the early church, Jude gives the following instruction to the church, reading the letter, verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, There will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. In verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Father, uh, holding your word in our hands, um, uh, we'll, we'll pray that the, the simple old, I believe, Anglican prayer that just says, Lord, what we have not, would you give us? What we know not, would you teach us? And who we are not, would you make us? For Christ's sake, amen. You may be seated. I have long been fascinated by a bumper sticker that I'm sure many of you have seen. I've been seeing it most of my adult life. Um, it's the, the coexist bumper sticker. You know what I'm talking about? Um, as a Christian, of course, I see that bumper sticker and I, I read it differently than perhaps the individual who read it that placed it on their car. I see the various symbols for various religions or ideas, and at the end, the T in coexist is the the cross, the typical Christian cross. And so when I I read coexist with the various symbols, what I read is error, 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 truth, right? But the individual who placed it on the back of their car reads truth, 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 and then the T for the cross, they probably go, hmm, you know? Maybe, maybe not. The, the C in coexist is replaced by the crescent moon, representing the, the religion of Islam. There is in there the, the Jewish star. There is, of course, the Christian cross. There is the E that has now become... Uh, symbolic of all different uh, types of humanity, male, female, and other. 
There's the yin-yang symbol of Eastern mysticism, which claims there's some good and some evil, some light and some dark in everything and everyone. I assume that would include the person of Jesus in their estimation. Friends, um, we, we might coexist with these various religious ideas on earth, but we certainly won't in the afterlife. Um, they, can't, they can't all be right, you know? So even by their own admission, the purveyors of this idea of coexisting would have to follow the logic of the claims of these symbols to the extent that someone is right and someone is wrong, we won't coexist in the afterlife. Well, that brings us to the topic of the day, uh, which is mercy. Mercy. We read in verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Mercy. Uh, one of my claims to fame, among, of course, my incredible running prowess, Please, hold your applause. One of my claims to fame is that I famously turned Phil Wickham down to become his bass player. Uh, Hey, will you move down here and come play bass and write music with me and the guys? And I was like, sorry, Phil. Got better things to do than to be awesome and famous with you. So I said no. Uh, Phil would later write a song uh, titled Mercy, and I just want to read you the lyrics. Made from the dust and breathed into life, he stood ashamed with a fire in his eyes, the image of God walking upon the world. This is Adam, not Jesus, not yet. All of the earth was under his feet, except for the fruit from a forbidden tree. He took a taste, and that's how he breaks the world. He cried, mercy, mercy. He broke the whole world with the fruit from a tree. Have mercy. Well, the story continues. Heaven to earth came down from on high with hope in his name and a fire in his eyes, the fullness of God. Not merely the image, but the fullness of God walking upon the world. Jesus. He said he was love, then proved it with blood rose from the dead to prove he was God, and that's what it takes for one man to save the world. Oh, such mercy. He saved the whole world when he hung on a tree. Such mercy. Then he goes, ooh. The story continues. Now here inside of our skin and bones, heaven above is making its home. The kingdom of God living upon the world. That's Christ in us. You follow it? Then he, in the final verse, he then gives the mission. To love like he loves and give like he gives. To tell the story that makes dead men live. That's what it takes if we're going to change the world. Mercy. Mercy. Well, that is the topic du jour. The subject of our text the mercy of God. 
receive it yourself and extend it to others. And so we have the title, Mercy, Receive, and Extend. If we're going to talk about, for a morning, the mercy of God, I believe we need to start at the beginning. So if you're taking notes, let's consider first, number one, the need for mercy. The need for mercy. Again, the title of the sermon, Mercy, Receive and Extend, implies that we Christians are first the recipients of God's mercy, and then the conduits of it to others. Again, such is the message of the final verse of the song. If we are to fulfill this role, we probably need to define some terms. Namely, to distinguish between mercy, forgiveness, and grace. We might use them interchangeably, but they are not the same. Mercy is not forgiveness, mercy is not grace, and yet these three work together like the three legs of a stool. So let's define terms. Forgiveness in Christianity is pardon for a crime committed. You say, well, that sounds like, I thought that was mercy. No. Forgiveness is the pardon. It's pardon for a crime committed. The crime is sin. The judge is God. He forgives our crimes against his law. This is his world, and we are his creatures, and we have rebelled against his limitations on human behavior. Being pardoned from those crimes is called forgiveness. Grace, right, this wonderful thing we sing about, we know about, we love it. We are saved by faith or by grace through faith. We say grace, we sing amazing grace. Grace is the, the gift of eternal life and peace with God. Well, of course, it's through Jesus Christ. Grace is representing a, a treasure we do not deserve. That treasure is peace with the God we have offended. More than being pardoned of previous crimes, we're given the gift of peace with Him in the future. See, it's one thing to be forgiven, but here's the problem. You're still a sinful human. And so the very next moment, perhaps the very next breath, you're going to offend his law again. And now what do you do? You spent your forgiveness, now what? Ah, see, that's grace. Grace is peace with God given. You didn't earn it, but you were given it. It is favor we have not earned. That's grace. Mercy is different from each of these. Mercy is, if you will, the choice that enables forgiveness and grace. Mercy is the choice that enables forgiveness and grace. Here's how. God could punish, has the right to punish, and is just should he choose to punish. Yet, he is the God of mercy, Nehemiah 9.31, and so he withholds just condemnation. It was mercy that delayed Adam and Eve's consequence of death, right? The day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. It was mercy that deferred the judgment. And it is mercy that preserved our life your life and mine, until we repented of our sins under the mercy of God's conviction. Can you imagine if God had taken you out of the earth, off the face of the planet, while you still shook your fist at him? It was his mercy that prolonged your life until... You cried, oh Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. 
in need of pardon. And so it is mercy that is extended. Mercy extends forgiveness to wayward humanity. All of wayward humanity is being extended the mercy of God's forgiveness. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that's everyone. Everything and everyone. He loves it enough to extend the offer. It was mercy that compelled Jesus to suffer, mercy that convicts us in our sin, and mercy that pardons the sin of the repentant sinner. Forgiveness is what we experience. Grace is the gift on top of his merciful forgiveness, blessing when we deserve, when we deserve judgment. Three legs of one stool, the stool being our position in Christ. It's good. Forgiveness, grace, mercy. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we would admit that our position before Christ, and perhaps too often even today, sounds an awful lot like the world as described in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's brutal. Now, as I wrote in my sermon preview, one cannot begin to understand mercy apart from judgment. What we have earned is God's wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. We are, by birth, children of wrath. We are a human race in desperate need of the mercy of God. Having understood this and having received mercy, experiencing the forgiveness of God and the grace gift through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are then to become agents of His mercy to fellow man. Of course, we cannot possibly become agents of something we do not have. So we must first, again, start at the beginning with our need for mercy. The minute we begin to entertain the notion that we aren't that bad, that we are pretty good by ourselves... We take ourselves out of the position of one who needs mercy and can therefore never become agents or conduits of it to others, right? And so it is, it is the, good, the good practice to follow the acrostic, A-C-T-S, acts in our prayers, our daily prayers, A for adoration. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Right? O Lord, how, how good it is to consider the stars of the heavens, the, the feeling of warmth of the sun on our skin, the, the, the beauty of the gift of our relationship with our children, the kindness of our neighbor. O Lord, you have created these things and you've given them to us, the intimacy of husband and wife and the joy that's found in it, the taste of food on our tongue, the aromas of my wife's perfumes, which I don't think you ever wear perfume. She smells good, though. I like the way she smells. You know what I'm talking about? Mmm. Sorry, babe. All these things are such good gifts from the Lord. It's right to begin a time of prayer just says, Oh Lord, you are good. And I can only scratch the surface in a moment of prayer to adore the wonder and the majesty of how good you are. Good to me, good in general, good objectively. But then from A, we move to C, confession. Oh Lord, forgive me. Pardon me again. Pardon me all over again. Oh, Lord, I have sinned. I have, Romans chapter 7, attempted the right thing, and yet I find myself on my face again and again. It's in my thoughts. It's in my heart. It's in my ambitions. It's in my fears. It's in my anxieties. 
It's in my, my omission. It's in my waking and getting right into my things and my email instead of waking and getting into your word. It's in the harsh tones with my children. It's in the laziness of my work. It's in the impatience with my spouse. Oh, Lord, no matter how hard I try, I fall short. What are we saying? A, C, we're saying C, confession. I'm continually in need of the mercy of God. This is the... This is why I'm so adamantly opposed to the teaching, the settled doctrine of the Catholic Church. It's not because I want to fight with other people who are supposedly on the same side. It's because the doctrine of the Catholic Church says you sin again, you're facing the wrath of God again. We've got to come in here every Sunday, every day, every time we get together, we crucify Jesus all over again. That's the nature of the Mass. So Jesus has to be killed over and over again, and you have to be pardoned over and over again to the extent that should you step out of line and catch yourself uh, breathing your last breath before you go to confession or take the communion and say the right things or do the, then that's it. You're sunk. There's no assurance. There's no confidence in the doctrine of the Catholic faith. We confess that we are perpetually in need of God's mercy, but we tea, we thank him for the cross where Jesus bled and died and purchased our salvation once and for all. And then, of course, S for supplication. We offer our requests, having adored God and confessed our sin and thanked him for the cross that assures us of our salvation and the grace gift that keeps us in his hand. Then we offer to him our requests, and by that point, in a pattern of prayer, our requests are often amended, maybe brought rightly into line. Uh, we, we are those who are in, in great need of God's mercy. And every day that we walk with Jesus, we are experiencing his mercy intimately. Well, Jude is writing to those who have received God's mercy, right? And he is saying, verse 3, to you who have experienced this mercy, contend for the faith. To you who have experienced this mercy, verse 17, remember that humanity's downward spiral has been predicted. To you who have been Recipients of God's mercy, verse 22 and 23, show mercy to those who are caught in the devil's schemes. But, oh, friends, I'm so hesitant to, to move on from point number one for fear that we are not in a perpetual state of gratitude for the mercy of God. I don't want to move on. I want us... Uh, I want us to appreciate with a sense of, of desperate gratitude that we have earned the wrath of God. That we're God to call us up to his seat, if you will, and say, sorry, friend. It's too much sin. It's too much anger. Too much neglect. Too much selfishness we would simply say back to him, you're right. You're right. I deserve the just penalty of my sin. That's what I have earned. You see, that's, that's where we begin, friends. Yeah, but thanks be to God, you know, he, he paid for those sins at the cross of Christ. And in the great exchange, he... he clothes us in his righteousness and his goodness and he takes our sin upon himself at the cross of Calvary and that is good friends it's good um, but I I hesitate that we too quickly move beyond the gravity of our tremendous need for the mercy of God let us not diminish that need 
I like the way Paul writes. Paul writes in his epistles in such a way that it's like he's, he, he never gets over the cross. I don't know if you've picked up on this when you read the letters of Paul, but he, he's always going back to the cross, and he's so thankful for the cross. It's, it's, it's like he, he, he's never not in awe. Right? And my fear is, is that if we're not careful, church, we can lose that sense of awe in our gratitude for the cross of Christ. Mercy revealed. Well, for the sake of time, we'll have to move from our need for mercy. Once that has been satisfied, what comes next is this expression of mercy. That's what we read, verse 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. That's you extending mercy. Three cases are represented in these verses. And as it is said, three kinds of patience require three kinds of treatment. The first patient is have mercy on those who doubt. I call these the confused. First group of people who are mixing it up with the church are the confused. These are young people or at minimum young in the faith. You can be young in the faith and be 50 years old. But too often, these young people or young in the faith might come to the more seasoned with earnest questions only to be met with critical harshness. That's a tragedy. You know, they're asking, how can we know the Bible is the accurate word of God? If God is all-powerful, why does he allow such evil to ravage his world? If God is all-knowing, why would he create people who he knows are going to reject him only to die in their sins and be doomed for all of eternity? These questions come to us. What are they saying? They're saying, I'm not so sure about all this. Will you help me? And we have a duty to respond with merciful kindness. I've heard too many stories, and it has happened too often in the church, that these expressions of doubt are met from the the aged, the pastor, or the gray-haired with harsh criticism. How dare you ask? How dare you accuse? I think perhaps that demeanor of harshness is birthed out of a guilty conscience. We can't answer those questions because we've spent plenty of time learning how to make our millions and almost none on how to articulate the faith we claim to hold so dear. And so when the confused come along, we don't know how to answer them. Well, that's the first group. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Extend that kindness, that patience that God extended to you while you were living and walking in rebellion. Extend that same kindness and patience to them. So there's the confused. The second case is the given over, as I call them. Jude distinguishes them. Have mercy on those who doubt, verse 22. Verse 23, save others. Meaning, not simply those who doubt, it's a different category. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is what I call the given over. The most common given over today in the church is the Christian deconstructionist. They grew up in the faith, they become disillusioned, perhaps receive some harsh and critical response to their questions, perhaps uh, were told week after week to, to be like Daniel and be brave, but they never learned that Jesus is at the center of all these stories and it's about grace. Shallow doctrine, 
makes for shallow young Christians, makes for scorched roots, friends. And you have this wave of what's called Christian deconstructionism. They are, if you will, given over, rejecting, walking away from. Uh, some of you in this room might have children who were raised in what you would consider to be the closest thing to Orthodox Christianity, and yet they are given over to their doubts, rejecting the notion of one way, one truth, one life, the narrow way that leads to glory. Having not received sufficient answers to their questions about the sovereignty of God and creating mankind, and especially, especially individuals who he sovereignly knows will reject him, and yet he creates them anyway, and where's the justice in that, and where's the mercy in that? having received poor answers to these questions and not being able to reconcile them, they've walked away, friends. Shallow doctrine, shallow roots, scorched faith. The instruction for Jude, excuse me, from Jude to you is to save them by snatching them from the fire. The imagery here is, is that they're so given over to their doubts, so blinded by the deceiver, that they're pictured not merely as on the road to destruction, but if you will, their, their hair is already being singed by the flames of hell. When our children were young, we would take them to the playground. Now we don't take them anywhere. Uh, it's like, go play. <laughs> You're old enough to not die. Get out of my house and don't come back in for a few hours. We're tired. Five, man. Anyway, sorry. When they were little, and life was just like rainbows and princess dresses, you know, it was awesome. Uh, but, you know, dad, the daredevil, wants to like let the little daughter go down the big slide. The little baby slide, that's boring. <laughs> Let's go down the big one. Whee! Adrenaline, right? Uh, but of course, mom would be right there, uh, waiting near the bottom of that slide as they come down, where they are sure to meet their doom, right? Off the end of that slide, woo! You know, right? On their back, and they're, you know, dying as far as they're concerned, right? So mom's going to do what? Mom is going to snatch them. They're as good as gone if mom doesn't intervene, right? That's the picture Jude paints for us. Your loved ones, your neighbors, your children who are given over to their doubts, Jude says, are as good as gone if you don't reach in there and snatch them up. I, I am so grateful to have witnessed over the years um, the diligence of, uh, I'll, just, I'll just say, of some members of my family. I've, I've watched their diligent, patient efforts with other members of the family to constantly reach out. I'm like, I'm washing my hands, man. I'm like, look, if they don't, they see it, they don't got it, they grew up in it, they're, they're come to the family event, that, nothing else I can do. And, and yet, there's like a, a, a motherly tug in the heart of some of these women in my family, these strong women of the faith, who refuse to give up and they keep reaching, and they keep responding, and they keep, what are they doing, friends? They're, they're snatching these family members out of the flames of hell. And I can think of about half a dozen members of my family, I don't know, either, you know, my married into my, like, into my wife's family, or members of my own family and my dad's side, at least half a dozen, who were, like, careening in their doubt, given over to their deception, only for the diligence of Christians in the family to pray them, to plead them out and into the light. 
it's a good thing to witness. It reminds you that the Lord answers prayer, you know, and that just because your, your child or your uncle or your nephew or your whomever seems to be just, just bolting in the opposite direction of the cross for year after year after year, when you're on the other side of it and they're repentant and they're whole and they're broken and convicted and returning to the Lord, you go, wow, right? Five years ago, I thought that guy was a goner. And so it's good to witness these things, right? It's good to be reminded of these things. To see and to know stories of, of those family members snatched off that slide. It reminds us to be diligent in prayer, right? It buoys our spirit when we come to the Lord on our knees again for our wayward child. You know? If it happened for them, it can happen for us. The same God rescued that one, he can rescue mine. And by the fervent prayer of the righteous, uh, you too may be celebrating yours having been snatched up. Right? It's good. To these we are to extend mercy. Not foolishly like me, write them off but continue to extend mercy in prayer and in pleading. You have the doubter, you have the given over, and then you have the third group listed here in Jude, the, the perpetrator. The perpetrator. So again, we're in point number two. We're talking about the expression of mercy. We are to express mercy to the doubter, express it to the given over. We're even to express mercy to the perpetrator, but there's a caveat. Again, verse 22, we'll read the three categories. Have mercy on those who doubt, one. Save others, two, by snatching them out of the fire. Two, others show mercy. Well, who are the others? There's, they're not the doubters. They're not those who can be snatched up. Two, others show mercy. Well, how do we know who these others are? By the caveat that comes after them. With fear. Show them mercy with fear. Fear of what? Fear of losing the game? Fear of ineffectiveness of our prayers? No. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Oh. Well, that changes things. Now, if we're, if we're critical about the text of Scripture, what we come to is this notion that the third group discussed is so given over to their error that an hour reaching out to them, an hour mixing it up with them, an hour trying to, we'll have coffee with them, we'll meet them, we'll greet them, that, that their error may get on us, for lack of a better term. It may stumble us. It may harm us in some various way. That tells me that there is something clever about this third group. They're mixing it up with Christianity, but boy, their deception is deep and it's clever. It could even trip you up as you attempt to bring them out. You see it? Not enough people said, yes, pastor, I see it. I'm just saying it's there. Now, in my exploration of the text, this is my discipline. Okay, for what it's worth, at the beginning of every week, on Monday morning, I'm looking at the next group of verses. And I, I try to do what Alistair says, which is to read yourself full first. So read the text, and then I read everything that sort of is surrounding the text. The context, cross-references, other aspects. Jude is making reference to Zechariah and Amos and Nehemiah and Genesis. Read full. Second step, think empty. So just write everything down. I'm just feverishly writing a whole bunch of nonsense, half of which gets deleted because it's terrible. I thought it was great Monday. And by Thursday, I'm like, man, that was garbage. What was I thinking? We're going to purge, get it all out, right? 
and then I want to go to various study tools. Then I want to go to your commentaries and your, your various, you know, uh, um, you know, textual, critical insights by men with degrees and big brains and long-standing walks with the Lord like Leonard Ravenhill and R.C. Sproul and Alistair and John MacArthur and Calvin and Luther and, right? The list goes on. I have 1,500 digital study books in my computer, not to mention the ones on my shelves in my office. So that's the process. One, two, three. So I do my first process, and I go, I see three groups of people. I see one, two, three. They seem to be extending, or excuse me, accelerating in the severity, doubt. They're being singed by the flames. They're dangerous. You see it? Boom, boom, boom. They see it seems to be stepping upward in the severity of their error. Three semicolons in the English text as the translators sought to take a Greek text and make it reliably readable and accurate in English. Others, others. I see three groups of people. So then I go to the commentary. Then I go to Calvin. Then I go to Sproul. And I go, am I seeing three people? Am I seeing three groups? Am I alone in this? And it's like three groups of people, three groups of people, three groups of people, three groups of people. All right, so we're in good company here, three groups of people. You didn't need to know all that. I'm simply trying to say, friends, there is a particular confidence when we come to this one that Jude is warning us about certain people. That we are to extend and express mercy, but be careful. There's a way to do it right, and there's about a hundred ways to do it wrong. So let's talk about the perpetrator who deserves mercy like the rest. It is to be exercised for fear, this ministry to the perpetrator, for a number of reasons. Perhaps in restoring such a one to the faith, we stumble ourselves in the process, Galatians 6.1. How might we stumble? Well, we might risk endorsing sin that Jesus forbids. A little bit of guilt by association. I'm not, friends, going to take a picture with certain pastors and post it online, like, glad to spend some time with my brother. What would I be doing? I'd be publicly endorsing this man and his words and his ministry. Now, I know that I'm there to confront him for false teaching, but everyone who sees my picture just sees me and him together, arm in arm. Right? You get the idea? Now, I'm nobody. Nobody cares what I do, but each of us has influence. So Jude says, extend mercy, but be careful that you don't endorse what Jesus forbids. That's the first way. This is why John, writing to the church in his second letter, he says, um, don't even welcome such a person into your home, for in doing so you, quote, take part in his wicked works. So there's a, a very real restriction on how. Or, secondly, in attempting to restore, you minimize the error of their doctrine. Quote, let not pity degenerate into complicity at their error. Your compassion is to be accompanied with fear of being defiled by them, end quote. That's a strong warning. Better have, better have your, your stuff buttoned up tight, right? Ready, armed, shield, sword, helmet, you know? Listen, there's a reason why these people have huge ministries, huge churches. Their tricks are effective. So don't you walk into battle unarmed. But definitely, definitely do not endorse their error. Perhaps the greatest pitfall of all is that of pride. So you might stumble, you might endorse what Jesus forbids, you might, you might 
affirm their error, you might also become prideful. In correcting another, it's all too easy to begin to play the comparison game to allow their stumbling to hover over them, if you will, in a, like a cloud over them in your minds, entertaining prideful thoughts of superiority in your own heart. What goes, what starts as an act of compassion turns into a prideful preoccupation. There's a danger there. No matter how it's done, ministry to the perpetrator of error must never compromise truth. There is no expression of mercy to others that is not accompanied by a hatred of sin. MacArthur writes, tolerance toward people is a good and biblical virtue, but tolerance toward false teaching is sin. Well, if we are to be the agents of God's merciful message to these various groups of people caught in accelerated, if you will, tiered levels of error, we must know our terms, we must live in an understanding of our need for mercy, we must express that mercy differently to different people in different stages of error, but thirdly, we must firmly hold, if you're taking notes, number three, to the message of mercy. We need it. We live in it. We express it to others, but friends, we've got to know what we're sharing. We've got to hold firm to the message of mercy. And what's the message of mercy versus what's the message of error that sounds like mercy? That's who. To me, one of the best expressions of the message of mercy is found in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can, or you can just listen. 2 Peter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of our Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist, listen, here it is, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Believe it or not, friends, that's the message of mercy. See, God promised not to destroy the earth by water, in Genesis 8. But he also promised that he will rain fire on it in the last days. This is the merciful message. Things will not always go on as they are. If you've read the, um, the book by C.S. Lewis, um, oh, the, the title escapes me now. It's um, the... the, the Screw tape letters, thank you. The screw tape letters. You've got one, uh, you have like an elder demon. It's fictitious. <laughs> okay, you have an elder demon writing to like his mentor, young demon, and they're like pen palling back and forth. That's the, that's the book. And what the mentor demon is doing is he's, he's helping his, his little his little protege demon, he's helping him learn how to tempt his assigned human. And one of the things that the elder demon coaches the younger demon to do is just to kind of keep him preoccupied. Just keep him, you know, he says things like, 
nominal church attendance is fine. We just don't want to see him doing things like praying, reading the Bible. Just keep him preoccupied with what? With this world. Things will always go on as they have. Just keep them docile. The merciful message, friends, is world, this will not continue as it has. There is going to be an end, only it won't be by water this time. It will be by fire. God's patient patient reservation of his judgment doesn't make him impotent. It makes him merciful. The message of mercy warns, corrects, and confronts. In each case, be it the doubter, the given over, or the perpetrator, the message of mercy is what they need, and it's tailored. Now, I've got a few more minutes here. I need you to just hang with me. I took a week off from the pulpit. I got it all stirred up. I got five hours worth ready to go here. So I need you to hang with me, okay, for two more minutes. This is the message of mercy. It can't be missed. Jesus warned Peter in his doubt. Why did you doubt? He was a follower. He was a disciple. He didn't warn him to condemn him, but to correct him. Hebrews 12, 6, the father disciplines those he loves. Why did you doubt? He warned him. Secondly, Jesus corrected Nicodemus. Nicodemus was convinced in his error, and yet he was intrigued by the message of Jesus. Nicodemus was not an opponent, but he wasn't a disciple either. And so Jesus corrected him not to condemn, but to save. It's believed that after Jesus' death and resurrection, Nicodemus lost his place as a Pharisee on the council because he became a believer in Christ. And John records that he aided in the burial and preparation of the body of Jesus. Good thing Jesus, in his mercy, corrected him. Right? And so he warned Peter, he corrected Nicodemus, and he confronted the various teachers, the perpetrators. Matthew 12 is one instance where he calls them a brood of vipers. In other places, he calls them whitewashed tombs. You're dead on the inside, but pretty on the outside. They were confronted because they were perpetuating error. If Jesus hated them, he would leave them alone. Mercy confronts them. And then history tells us that many of the early Pastors in the Christian church were, in fact, Pharisees who became believers after Jesus' resurrection. Perhaps even some of those very Pharisees who Jesus called a brood of snakes. How great would that be? What's your name? My name's Steve. How'd you meet Jesus? Well, I was listening to him teach one day, and uh, I hated his guts, of course, right? Because <laughs> we all did. And he called me a snake, and you know, that really hurt my feelings. And then he rose from the dead, and I was like, oh, he was right, and I was wrong, right? Can you imagine? It's like AD 65, and you got this like gray-haired Pharisee-turned-Christian pastor talking about how the grace of Jesus, in his mercy, he insulted him to his core. In his mercy, he confronted me to my face, and he called me names. I'm thankful for his mercy that he didn't just leave me in my error. Right? He warns Peter. He corrects Nicodemus. He confronts the perpetrator. The message of mercy does that, friends. It never affirms error. Now, finally, I would offer the message of mercy is not silence in the face of error either. It's not silence. Recently, I, I, I think I've shared this with you already in this series, but it's worth noting again. Recently, the, uh, the Pope, Pope Francis, was asked about homosexuality being compatible with Christianity. 
And, um, and his response was, well, who am I to judge? Um, later saying, uh, oddly, in a book, ironically titled, The Name of God is Mercy, Pope Francis says, God loves all his creatures, and we are destined to receive his infinite love. No, we're not. We who are in Christ, the forgiven, the repentant, who by grace through faith have been saved, but not all his creatures, that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Jesus said. He said, wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many find it. Narrow is the path that leads to life, and few find it. The hope that Pope Francis gives to a rebellious world is not mercy in his book on mercy. It's false hope. It's lies. It's a false gospel perpetrated by a false teacher, that's silence in the face of error. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Well, how would they be led astray? Because if someone comes in among you and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if someone comes among you and says, receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if someone comes among you and offers a different gospel from the one you accepted, here it is, Paul said, They cut me off. <laughs> it's like the Oscars, you know. You know, it's like, you're done, pal. It's the nursery workers downstairs unplugging stuff from the wall. We'll show him. 11, 15, nothing. This is it. Like, one more paragraph, I promise. What does Paul say? He says, I'm afraid that like Eve was deceived, you'll be deceived because you just are putting up with error. See, silence in the face of error is not mercy. There's no honor in putting up with false doctrine and masquerading as genuine Christianity. That's not the mercy of God expressed to others. And so let me end just with this, friends. The need, quote, the need to be vigilant in the face of false teaching will remain a perpetual need for the church until Christ returns. But be encouraged. The gospel is sufficient. The spirit is alive. Jesus rose from the grave. He is at work, and greater is he that is in you than he that is, listen, deceiving the world. Be bold, church, as we wait for the mercy of Jesus and the consummation of the new creation where Revelation says nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So be bold. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word and the kindness that you show to us in preserving your word. Thank you for songs that enrich and educate our minds. Thank you for your patience as you defer your judgment. Thank you for hearing our prayers for our loved ones who are wayward. Thank you for the confidence that our words do not stand alone, 
but that in fact when we speak your word, we speak with a power that can cut to the heart. And so may we be encouraged by this confidence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.